You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Michael Brooks, who is the CEO and founder of Golance. He has created one of the world's largest freelance platforms where high quality global talent is able to connect with and work with for incredible companies all over the world. On this week's episode, we talk about what is the future of outsourcing? How does risk impact one's decision making? What's it like to run a company from Puerto Rico? How to stand up to a larger company that tries to bully your startup? How to use Quora and podcasts for your company's marketing? And much more. All right, this is an amazing episode. And for everyone out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker. Connect with me on LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. All right, now let's start this week's episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, Michael, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, for our audience out there, I've stayed at Michael's house. He's got the coolest backyard. In fact, I think he's got the uh, envy of the entire community he's in for this setup. I'm not going to go into any more detail with that. You just imagine it, uh, basically a water park in your backyard. But uh, Michael, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Can you give us a little bit of background of yourself, your career up until this point? Sean, absolutely. Thank you uh, for having me as a part of the program. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the Silly Podcast. And I feel like I'm in the Silly with Sean. That should be the new name. Um, yeah. Uh, and by the way, the backyard, uh, I got a neighbor who doesn't like it very much. He's, uh, he's a little grumpy. He's a little grumpy. We had a bit of an exchange and he, uh, he's demanded that I have my construction workers go home at four. Apparently in the bylaws in Dorado Estates, Puerto Rico, your construction workers go home at four. And I said, no problem. Four o'clock is when I insist they go home because I have rap music from four o'clock until 10 o'clock at night. And I hope you like Biggie and Tupac, bitch. And I literally said that in a text message. So uh, he decided it was fine. He's not a big uh, old school hip hop fan. He said, go ahead, have your guys till five. So I thought um, you were going to counter and say, okay, they just start at now four in the morning instead of five. And they're not allowed to. They, they, but they, in Puerto Rico here, it is, dude, it's the Caribbean. It's the most beautiful place on the planet. If you get a team that is willing to work, a full day until 5 p.m. Like that is gold here. You nurture that team and you take care of them. And I've got a neighbor that's like, no, I don't like it. I don't want you putting a sauna in your backyard. I don't want you building this. And he's grumpy. And I'm like, okay, then war. And uh, unfortunately, fortunately for him, unfortunately, I'm not sure. Fortunately for me, uh, he's not a he's not a fan of uh, the rap classics because I would have switched to Bone Thugs real quick. And then my guys have been working at five. So he, he acquiesced. And when you come back and visit, it's going to get done. It is a wild backyard, but you know, what's the point? You're living in Puerto Rico. You might as well have your own little private heaven, you know? I mean, right there for our listeners, they, they saw how there was a problem, solution, thinking outside the box, thinking about there's just so many lessons learned right there. I'm not even sure we need to continue the podcast, but. Uh, <laughs> well, the thing is like, in this day, like you try to be nice to people. 
and you try to be communicative and then you reach out and you try to have a nice discussion. But once someone says, no, I'm a bully, right? Like it's that noise is over. It's done. And it's usually people who had their career in the 80s, right? That is the, that is like, and that translates into business and it translates into some of the most beautiful things about Silicon Valley and the spirit of it. The bulliness is gone and that's not attracting people. So I'll go into my background a little bit and why I'm so involved in this, this type of stuff. And they do, but. Look, I, I, who was this? Uh, Vander Holyfield said, you know, you stand up, you defeat a bully, you leave him with nothing, right? Somebody tries to bully you, push you around, you know, you can try to be cool with them. But once you stand up and you go, nope, no more, whether that's in business or backyards with a pain in the ass neighbor, like you, you've taken a stand and every now and again, you might, you might not go your way, but you, you know, you, you know what it's like to take a stand. Sure. We're getting way off track, but it's, uh, I think it's a good message. Well, I think this will set it up for the conversation because, I mean, one of the things I'm going to ask you is, have you ever had to stand up to anyone in business? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And it was uh, it was family, too. So that was uh, that was challenging. But it it set the foundation for, you know, and it, it's not just being aggressive. That's fun. Sometimes um, you can do that. But it's also just setting. It's more instead of standing up to someone else, the best way. It's just setting boundaries for yourself and learning that like you don't control other people, but you say, this is my boundary and setting people tell you who you, who they are through their actions. And you set boundaries and you readjust those boundaries accordingly. But real quick, little background, founded a company called GoLance, freelance marketplace, uh, totally privately funded through debt and not uh, good debt like I'm talking the the high interest, crazy Shylock, break your kneecaps kind of debt. In fact, I think the Shylocks, like the real loan sharks, probably gave out better deals than the type of debt I got from some of these some of these like crazy factoring companies. Many many years, we're about eight years in. Our company's GoLance. We're a global freelance platform. We connect clients to freelancers. You probably heard of some of our. Uh, some of our competitors, there's a couple out of San Francisco. Schmuckwork is one of them. I don't say their name. I've heard of Ms. Schmuckwork just because I've had competitors that are bullies. Uh, Schmuckwork is one of them. But that that was one I stood up to years ago. And I'm glad I did. And I fought really hard and creatively because uh, they saw us coming up and sued us and tried to crush us. And you know that's a real thing. For you, to, you don't think about that. You're like, oh, yeah, you're here. If you're getting sued, you mean you're on the right direction. It's all cute. You know, these, these companies with big budgets and big capital can, can stand up and put their foot on your neck real quick. And you've got to be able to be wiggle out of that and fight in ways that they can't. And it's not the best part of business. But if you fall in love with that process and you welcome it and you train for it and you prepare for it, you can do really well. And, um, you know, that's uh, I don't know if that's very helpful to the silly to the silly valley crew because everybody's nice and sweet to each other out there. But um, out here in Dorado, Puerto Rico, sometimes sometimes you got to flex a little muscle and you, you at least have to stand your ground. So wait, going back even further. Is Golance your first company or did you have a couple companies prior to that? And the loan shark, I, why did you go that route? Why not a traditional bank? Um, well, the one, it was, I don't think I had the credit for a traditional bank. I mean, I, I, I had credit cards and I put money on my credit cards. 
right? But that's 20% interest right there. So I definitely built the first on the credit cards and then on the receivables. And receivables factoring is, you know, expensive. And, you know, a bank, maybe I could get 50K. You know, they just didn't, I didn't have a house at the time. This is eight years ago. Uh, But no, it wasn't my first company. I had another company that was an e-commerce platform and it was a subscription billing platform. And it was doing well enough. I hadn't sold it, but I had had a partner take over. And it's actually doing better now that I'm not running it. So God bless my partner there. Uh, and I, I get to be a shareholder, which is really nice. But uh, it, wasn't what, it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my working life. I had to get there. So I, I had that before the economic crash. And I started that like 2006, really built it up, maybe 2005, really took steam 2008. And it did really well 2008 through the crash, 2009, 2010, all the effects of everything, lawsuits, nastiness, just things fell apart. Clients had problems. And I had to let go of like 50 people in Orange County uh, in Newport Beach at my big swanky office. And it, it dude's Sean, it hurt, man. It hurt letting go of all those people. And I thought the company was done. And my partner who runs that runs that business now, the managing partner of that company, said, you know, let's let's try a freelancer. Let's and I'm like, what? He's like, no, no, you can find these people on this website and uh they they work remotely. And I'm like, I don't know, man. This is code. And I I had a very big concern about it, but I had no other options. So I threw a Hail Mary pass to a, a software developer out in uh, five hours outside of Moscow. And I was like, I hope he's cool. <laughs> and he was. And now he's the CTO of that company and he lives in Panama. And but uh, he's and that was well over a decade ago. And then once we kind of navigated through that storm, rebuilt that company, and it was doing well enough to where I could step away, I looked at what I wanted to do for the rest of my working life. So I tasked myself with the question, how long do I want to continue working? Well, I was like 36 at the time. So I said, I think I could go to like 75. Like I could commit to working 75, maybe not keep staying steam, but like I'm going to want to be involved and be a part of something, maybe not in the same position, maybe something further down the down the trough. I, mean, I want to be in working and keeping my mind fresh. I think 75 is a good year. So that would be about 40 years. So I'm going, okay, if I committed to a business for 40 years, I'm going to make different decisions. I'm going to lay a different foundation. So if I knew I was going to be in the same business for 40 years, what would it, 40 years, what would it be? And that's when I said, you know, I really like being able to hire freelancers. So I hired that one, saved my company. And then once the company started doing well again, we only hired freelancers. So I was like, I don't want to deal with employees again. It was heartbreaking. I had to sit in front of them. I had to fire them when everything or lay them off and everything went down. I had the full Michael Scott office. We did Halloween parties. There was that's what she said jokes everywhere. I mean, it was like it was my culture in the office and I, I felt like it was my domain and it just got shattered. It was very difficult, very difficult time. And looking at it going, well, you know, if I have a freelancer and things get a little turbulent, I can just help the freelancer get more freelancing work and like kind of manage his or her time. And I did that for a long time and going, wow, this is this is better. This is easier. This is less pain. I, I You genuinely, as a CEO, uh, lots of us genuinely care for the people that we work with. We genuinely want them to be successful, healthy, and happy. And I think when people pick up on that, they genuinely care about the work they do and who they work with. So I was like, you know what? This is it. I, if I'm going to marry 
to a business. Like I'm married to my wife, hoping I'll be with my wife more than 40 years. That's <laughs> what, what would it, what would it be? And I was like, well, there you have this freelance stuff. So that's made it allowed us to make healthier decisions. That's why I said, you know what? I know this is going to take a lot of capital to get this off the ground. I ran very tight. I learned to speak different languages so I can go to different countries to get better software developers and lower costs. I mean, I did what it took to, to get off the ground, but it, you know, I'm competing with companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like this guy. <laughs> so yeah, we thankfully knock on wood, we paid back all of our all, all, all of our debt, but it was a it was a long road to do that. And especially, but like there's no way I would take that kind of debt on now. Now we have very strong financials, all the stuff you need. But if I was going to take on debt, it would be, it would be like bank rate type stuff. But back then, I, I mean, I couldn't just say, "Hey, I need a million dollars to go start a platform." I'm going to go. Uh, I got a really good deal in Belarus on software developers, so I'm going to go get a citizenship of the Republic of Georgia so I can get visa free travel there. You cool with that? Like that message? <laughs> it's a little out there, but did what needed to be done, and I loved. The travel. I loved getting out there. I mean, I've stayed at a software developer's house in Siberia. Like I, I was in Moscow speaking at a conference, working with uh, getting, uh, getting, getting clients, finding freelancers. And our best, one of our best ones was in Omsk, Siberia. And I had a few days between conferences. So I flew down and stayed with him. I mean, that was, that was amazing. The thing about Omsk, Siberia, by the way, anybody listening, it's not a great place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. Just saying. <laughs> don't go it's terrible it's probably worse now i do not want to go back even people from Omsk are like yeah no this is not the spot um but uh very nice people but and now that developer has made it made it to our six figures sorry seven figures club so he's made over a million dollars through our platform not just on him getting paid but he used subcontractors within our platform we have a little we have a subcontractor and a sub freelancer capabilities. And that's been amazing. And a lot of what we've developed is based upon the feedback of our most successful freelancers and and the most successful people in our community. So that's what's been a driver. Now I like to be home a little bit more. I like it when you come visit. And uh, and that's that's uh, that's where I'm at these days. But that's how we kind of grew. I had the energy, I was a little younger, but the long term vision, being able to work backwards and saying, okay, instead of I want to build this and be out in five years, it's like, well, okay, well, well what if you were going to stay in something longer? What's the longest you would be willing to stay? And that doesn't mean you can't, right? But it's definitely going to shape your decisions when you think with the end in mind. And you 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 run backwards on the clock that way, and it it makes you healthier too. So you can have your objectives, but it in at least for me, it, it made the business decisions, the process, everything we did healthier, and it helped us have a longer term play a, a longer game with a longer term strategy, and still get up in the morning and go, okay, great, we're not having the massive wins today and pressuring for that quarter. We're going, how are we setting ourselves up for the next decade? And when that works, it's unlike any other business I've ever been involved. Now, I've heard founders going all in, 100% all in with everything. But it almost sounded like you took that to a whole nother level, going to well, Siberia, but learning languages. Going, talk about you know, that all in experience. And I'm also kind of curious, I mean, you started doing outsourcing 12, 14 years ago. How has that industry changed over this time? So, I mean, kind of two questions there. 
Yeah, well, let's start. Let's start with the second one. The after COVID, everything like everything changed. You know, there's a lot of e-commerce guys, people selling on the internet, remote workers, remote businesses, like people that are moving fast and breaking things. They adapted the global freelance network first. That business has evolved from a very sick time where someone like small young entrepreneurs and and I hate to say it because I even kind of thought of it for, for a while. I was like. Oh, I'll just get somebody in this poor country and pay them cheap and they'll do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way, right? You can get a real, like my, like we, we talked about the difference between wisdom and experience offline a little bit. And it's like, no, that doesn't, let's find people that are good people that are talented, that are high quality. And let's try to envelop them into our culture and run things like a business, but get a really good value. And that's, that's where we're at now. Where it was before is I'll just have somebody here and I'll just give them, pay them super cheap and it doesn't matter. And they're going to end up doing what I want. That that's Those days are over. That that mentality is for, for a very sick entrepreneur. The right thinking, which has evolved now is harvest, uh, enroll really good people, have them go through an entire process, create an online working culture, and then bring them as part of your culture and then measure and... Uh, do all the things you would do if you were you had a big swanky campus in the silly. It uh, after COVID, it, like it made it so much harder because it was so easy before COVID because I would just explain to people, business owners, the value of freelancers and how easy it is. They'd be like, "Wow, really? That's possible!" And now it's just expected. So now we're just ex- serving an expected market, whereas we're not educating and enrolling, which is like it's. I found a lot easier and a lot more fun, but it's still a lot of fun. It's just, it's different. Now everybody gets it, they know it, and they're out putting their best foot forward on it. Now, over this last eight years at the new company, Golanza, you've built, kind of at the beginning, you're going all in, risking everything, whereas now it sounds like, you know, strong foundation, a little bit more risk adverse. I mean, risk and your decisions. How do you manage that? How, what's your thought process around that? How do you man? How, how do I manage risk and decisions? When you're thinking about making a decision on that risk profile, how are you thinking about things? Yeah, so we look at risk reward ratio, right? You know, there is a lot of value. I, I, so we, you and I were just talking about acquiring a company, right? So we we do enterprise software development, and we try to find really good developers teams. That's we have clients that use our marketplace. We have clients that use staff augmentation. And then a lot of us that, that just go, hey, just go, just go develop. We do that for SMBs. And we've like, oh, wow, let's, instead of just going out and marketing for clients, why don't we just buy a company, a software development company? And we've looked at a couple of really big ones with some marquee clients that are kind of huge. And we're like, well, this, this might be great, but it's a lot to stomach. And just the legal on it is the risk. And then the time's the risk. And then I go, well, what am I willing to like? Then there's like tiny ones with like 25 customers and the, the EBITDA buyout's much lower and they're doing a lot of things wrong. So I can get rid of a lot of costs. So I like, I go back to my roots of thinking small and going, can I make this work on a very small level? And if I can, then I can make it work on, on a bigger level, but I may not want to, you know, those like looking at those monster big deals, sometimes lots and lots and lots of little guys are worth a lot more than a couple of really big monsters. So when I look at risk, I look at the cost associated with going after the marquee is usually a much greater. It's also terms are a lot more. 
not just monthly and at 30 or 60 or 90. So yeah, they're good clients. They tend to pay more. They're bigger. But you can do a lot more and move a lot faster and pick up some amazing people when you're focused on smaller and like, can you buy a lot of little guys? And then what's the risk, right? We're just talking about that going, okay, in a structured buyout, you've got a, a breakup. You can break up at any time. Uh, it's much easier. Guys are usually much easier to work and just kind of want out because they're not running inefficient. And then you look at it and you go, what's legal going to cost just to go through Okay, well, let's take the cost of legal and just use that as a down payment. And if everything else works, then I don't have, I mean, I, I cut out my legal expense, you know? And, and then, like, okay, let's look at the due diligence. Yeah, you've got to do some due diligence, but on a small deal, like, do you really need to do that much? Like, because if you lose, what do you lose? Right? You go, okay, well, again, let's look at because the due diligence on a big deal is going to be much more and heavily involved. The legal on a big deal is going to be much more and heavily involved. But you do a small one, you're like, eh, you know what? I'm not going to use a lawyer. Here's a contract. Let's go look at your, you know, try to keep things simple. And that's, uh, that's how, I, that's how I, I try to get strategic with, with risk is cutting out, cutting out. You know, don't don't get me wrong, right? Somebody serious coming in with big bucks, they're gonna go to Sean, they're gonna buy a monster, and Sean's gonna make a huge commission and be happy, right? That's what that's what we all want. We all want to work for you, Sean. But like, look, and those that's beautiful when you can make that happen and it's extremely valuable. But it, sometimes you're climbing the ladder to get there. You know, I can't really speak to the big CEO who's well capitalized and well funded and has kombucha on tap, right? We don't do that. We keep it lean. Price is still an advantage. And and, and we're not afraid to get our bloody, our knuckles bloody knocking on doors, but lots and lots of little deals. It also makes you sharper for the big deals. So that's a way to mitigate risk. And then once you do these, you kind of figure out, oh, okay, let's say I'm buying software companies. Once I buy a bunch of little ones, I know I'm better at the next one and better at the next one. And then you just kind of climb the ladder and you walk up. So So in a nutshell, like the risk strategy for an entrepreneur CEO like me, not well-funded, self-funded, grew through sales is think small, right? Do things that aren't going to like, take risks that aren't going to hurt the entire enterprise. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's look at that risk reward ratio. And then if you're going to take on some of those bigger things, bring in people that know what they're doing. Bring in people like Sean that can do the right vetting for you, that can make sure that that'll That'll consult with you and say, hey, this is how this can strategically work in your organization. We can integrate this type of uh, transaction in your organization. But thinking small is, uh, and just owning a calculator, right? <laughs> Look at the cost of acquiring a customer, the lifetime value of a customer. How, what's the difference between acquiring one versus buying one? That's how I look at risk. Start small and have fun. It doesn't matter how small, get in and be a part of it. You're above nothing uh, as the CEO of a company. I think every, all our listeners should listen to that segment two, three times. There's so much there. Most people listening probably have no ideas. It is so easy to rack up six figures or more in legal fees on these transactions. Like It's so easy to do that. And getting those reps in and that repetition, just like going to the gym or anything else you do, the more you see it, the more you do it, you're going to catch things and, and, and notice things that you didn't see there before. And so, so Michael, I mean, Amazing insight and all that. Question for you also with the kind of think small, think lean, think different. You have a whole different marketing strategy than everyone else out there with Quora and podcasts. Can you can you talk about this? 
Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> we didn't, we haven't bought any Google ads, nothing. And we did 44 million in gross service revenue last year, blended revenue. And I think we're looking at around 68 million this year. And we haven't bought Facebook or a Google ad. We did do heavy content strategy. So we went out and look, we looked at what it would take. What's the best way to get a customer, right? You get a referral or you make a connection. Quora was a gem for us for a long, long time. We found people that asked a lot of questions on Quora about freelancers in this type of space, entrepreneurial questions. And we went out and I found someone I work with. Sometimes I do it, sometimes he does it. And we would just answer their questions and just try to provide as much value to them as possible, as thanklessly as possible. And that was worth a lot more than a click, right? That is like not saw an ad I clicked on here. I'm interested. I'll buy. I might buy from you. It is, I asked a question. I needed help. And somebody genuinely gave me value and helped me. And uh, I want to know what they do. And maybe I can help them too. That and I go on a lot of podcasts. I got a podcast agent and I would just go on a lot of podcasts and I would work with podcasters. Sometimes they become clients. Sometimes they're, they're clients. I mean, dude, to get a podcast agent, it's like 1500 bucks a month and you're on a minimum of three. To be honest, you don't even really need that. You can do it yourself or you can have a virtual assistant go to like Podmatch. And again, to your point of going to the gym and working out, working the marbles out, you get to kind of work out your pitch. You get to hear what people's responses are to things. And I'm sure when you post this, I'll get somebody reaching out to me and be like, oh yeah, I heard you talk about the schmuck work. That's funny. Like these kinds of things happen all the time. People hit me up on LinkedIn and they're just like, hey, and you know, that customer is worth a lot, especially if you're really good to them and you treat the customer really well, they're going to refer other business. It's not scaled the way you scale when you buy ads and you have a whole system. And we are heading into that direction. I'm sure that's somewhere where we're, that's a place where we're going to be. And that's fine. It's a fine thing. Uh, it's just a different type of dogfight. And I'm going, I can't compete there with the guys who have hundreds of millions of dollars, right? I'd have to go back to the Shylocks. But I can go find people who need help because of platforms like Quora and different Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups. And I can just answer their questions the best of my ability. And, and not necessarily self-aggrandizing, but branding myself personally as someone who genuinely, authentically wants to help people. And sometimes those people come back and say, oh, Thanks for answering my question. I need freelancers. I'm going to go to you. I mean, it's uh, I need this. I'm going to go to you. So getting your message out is one way, but having a strategy, a, a marketing strategy of providing value to somebody is really far less expensive than you think. The opportunity is everywhere and it creates a beautiful customer. I love that. I love that. And also throughout the, the podcast so far, there's been so much information on thinking different Versus if you have that $100 million funding versus bootstrapping. And, you know, here in Silicon Valley, a lot of people just think, I need to raise more capital. I need to sell off my company because I need the millions and millions of dollars to go against these big guys. But are there any other areas where you're like, hey, listen, this is the sandbox we play in because these people are over here and we figured out ways to, to grow this company, bootstrap this, grit. Try to remain sane. Go look at your competitors. Are you more profitable than them? Did they are they doing great? Revenue and market share is a beautiful thing until the economy turns, then it's cash flow and profits, right? I look at my competitors. They don't make money at all. So we're more profitable than them. Like that's a nice statement. 
So try to find out where you are win, where you can win and lean into that and recognize where you're not winning and recognize, okay, and be honest about it. This is where we're not beating them. This is where our value proposition isn't where they are. And this is where we, this is, but this is where we rest far below it. However, over on this side, on the other hand, our value proposition is much higher than theirs and lean into that. But the the notion that, hey, we're just, if we buy more ads, then we're going to be able to compete with the other guys. I think it's it's laziness and just it's average run-of-the-mill CEO garbage. And great. Beat your chest. Buy the kombucha. I don't know. I'm old school, man. Right? Dollar saved is a dollar earned. You can make more or spend less. Look at yourself. Where are you winning? You know, most of what, why do you have to always beat out your competitors? Right? Why, why not just do really well, serve your clients really well and make more than you spend every time? Nobody, nobody gets mad at that. I feel like there's a trap. It's choose your trap. Do you want to get in the Shylock trap, which usually kills companies? I mean, they beat it out of that. Or do you want to get into the uh, capital race trap where you constantly have to hit certain numbers and you've got to be accelerating? That's a, it's a dangerous, it's it's a tough game. I gotta, they got to sell off chunks of their company to raise money to go get more customers. Yeah. Is, is that the only way to do it? Is that it? Is that, is that the only option? Do people ever stop it? Let me ask you, Sean, where is your Quora page? Right? Where's your? Where's your? Are you on Corey yet? Going out helping people answering questions. I got. I got a homework assignment. Set up your own page. I, I just use Corey. There's other platforms. That's the one I like, and I've I answer a lot of platforms. Go find different questions that people ask and answer them, and you'll see what type of people. Like, look. Worst case scenario, you just help somebody get an answer. But it's not just that person. It's the people that see that answers. And when you when you answer somebody in a really thoughtful, meaningful way, and other people ensue into that, and other people are mentioning and commenting, your answers go up to the high. It's, it's basically SEO for helping people. It's really cool. And it's a great way. I mean, if you get, if you like, how many hours would you have to spend per client? If you spent two hours helping people, but you got a client every two hours or a prospective client every for every two hours worth of work. Would it be worth it? Would it be worth it to you, Sean? I spend so many hours every day just Zoom meetings trying to get to know the person. I don't even know the number of Zoom meetings I have all day long, all week long. And just thinking about having that one piece of content that I mean, that's what the podcast is. Is you create a piece of content and it lasts indefinite and other people share and that. I'm thinking as you're talking right now, how easy it would be just to answer a core question specific on investment banking, specific. And anyone search for that would go, oh, investment, because it, it filters it for you. That's the greatest thing. Totally. And it's not just that. Never Don't underestimate the power of personal branding. What's the first thing you think of when you think of Tesla Motors? Crazy Elon. I don't know. I mean, nice guy. I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to say anything that someone later will come after this, but let's uh, just say you think of Elon Musk. You don't think of an electric car. You don't think of the Model S. You don't think of the Model E or the Model X. Uh, you, you don't think about um, electric batteries. No, you think of the CEO. That guy is a personal brand. Every time he mentions, every time he puts out a tweet, every time he talks about whatever, controversial or otherwise, He's getting brand value. So the power of the personal brand, the brand, the personal brand associates with the business brand. So let's take some of the most commonly asked questions. You know, you do this podcast, you get to introduce people 
to the silly, to the silly valley. You get to bring the silly valley to everyone else, right? It's great. I call it the silly. It's the silly. I think <laughs> I think that should shorten your name podcast. Just the silly. Um, but uh, you know, there, there's also I'm sure you get hit up all the time with questions and people. Oh, I want to buy a company. This. What about that? Like, what if you wrote an article about it? And dude, I'm I write articles. I'm not the best. I have an editor. She works on GoLance. When she's not working on GoLance, I call her mom. But she's my mom. She's one of the best GoLancers we have. But she worked with me on articles and we can answer questions there. So you get people to ask questions, you can direct them to your articles, but then your articles also attract business. There's this guy who is a money transmitting guy. I'm going to say his name because I'm impressed with him. Is is He did this better than anyone else. His name's uh, Faisal Khan or something. I think it's Faisal. Whatever. Guy's great. And I mean, if you type in money transmit, he comes up, he's always doing videos on every aspect of it. And he's got a YouTube page. He's huge on Quora. He just understands. I don't know what his company name is, right? I just know who he is. And the power of his personal brand makes him an unbelievable expert. So you take the same time, the same conversations you're having on Zoom, and you mirror that to even a small degree and make it on YouTube videos, answering stuff, and you become an expert. I did this with a, uh, with a kid. He was the stepson of a painter that was painting my house when I lived in Washington State. And he's like, hey, I want to I buy Facebook ads. I want to be a Facebook media buyer. But he didn't really know how to do it. He hadn't done it for anyone else, but he had a huge interest in it. He's like, how can I go get clients with it? I said, okay, make your, be honest, right? Make your, make your price really easy to get at. But go look at all the videos out there on how to buy. Rewrite it by media. Rewrite them. So that you're understanding them, create a blog, create a YouTube page, and teach people how to do it. He was 19. He was hungry, wasn't going to college. This is what he wanted to do. He spent 40 hours doing that, 80 hours, but however many hours it takes. And he did. He went out there. He intensively wrote. He watched all these videos. He found the best one, find all these little different ones. And he did it. He put it together. And he goes, here I am. I've got this video. And this is on how to buy on CPC, how to buy on CPL, all the little Facebook media buying stuff. And then he just started applying for jobs on GoLance. I said, and sign up for other platforms, sign up everywhere, take the job, figure it out. And like this kid started like eight bucks an hour. When I talked to him last, he was at 50 and he didn't have any time because he damaged, he saw the answer for somebody. And he said, hey, you don't need to hire me. I'll teach you this for free based upon what I learned. Here's a video. People go, okay, great. You taught me enough to know that you know what you're talking about. I'm going to hire you. And I mean, uh, the kid's so busy, he doesn't return my calls. (laughs) But it was like, he took the time. And not everybody's in a position where they have 40 hours a week. But if they could figure it out and take the time to create your personal brand, understand or demonstrate your competency. And if you don't know it, go figure it out, learn it, and then tell somebody in a way so that they can do it without you. The goal is, the thing is, they don't want to do it without you. They want you to do it. They just want to know who knows what they're doing. So that was, a, that was a huge gem to help this guy get all the work he needs. And it is cheap branding. But if a CEO who's out there trying to sell off a piece of his company, stressed to the burger, trying to hit his numbers, takes a slightly different view and optimizes their personal brand, not only is it brand value for the company, not only does it bring value to the company, it brings value to that person individually in a magnitude of ways. Michael, okay. So you've built this amazing company, 
But Nate, you're living in Puerto Rico. Did you build this when you when you arrived there? Did you have it before? Like, what's the story behind the move to Puerto Rico? So I had the I I started the company shortly before I moved to Puerto Rico. The company's still a Delaware company. I technically manage it out here. I've got Max here with me. He's uh, he's my producer here. He makes sure I I don't say any bad words. Uh, <laughs> uh, Puerto Rico has some tax advantages. You know, again. I'm willing to go to Siberia. I'm, I might as well move to Puerto Rico. <laughs> right? I'm going to take the angles where I can because if not, there's this has been. It's a good way to learn to to have a little bit of an edge to compete. So there's tax advantages to to have businesses out here in Puerto Rico. So I run my company out here in Puerto Rico. We're fully remote, so we have people that work all around the world. But this is where I work. And uh, this wouldn't matter if I was in the Silicon Valley in Washington State or in Alaska. Like I'm I'm in a room and I'm doing my work and I'm around some great people and I'm tapping in to amazing talent around the world at an incredible value in such a way that I can create a culture where people can come together remotely and create amazing results. Okay. And with that, going back to something that was mentioned earlier, standing up for yourself. Have you ever had to fight, push back? Do you have an example you can share? Or what are your thoughts a little bit more on, you know, that company bullying that startup? I mean, the, the big company bullying the startup. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing you don't want to do is just go hire a bunch of lawyers and melt down. Like understand one first. An ounce of protection is a pound of cure. Set yourself up in such a way, set your company up in such a way so that there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of points of failure. So you can, you're not making any huge mistakes. I, like, they happen though. But uh, it, God, I don't know. I mean, strategically, yeah, be prepared to fight. Because there's going to be, if you're successful, people are going to come after you. And they're going to try and take from you and they're going to try and hurt you and they're going to try and take you down. And I don't know anybody who hasn't had that to some degree, to, to some to some degree. Some it's more extreme than others. When you're a bootstrap entrepreneur going up against a well-funded behemoth, hey, roll up your sleeves. But I will tell you this. All right. So here's the secret. They will tell you where their weak points are. So I told you we were sued by a schmucky competitor. I went and found where their weak points were on their own forum. I listened to their customers. I read their reviews. I read the LinkedIn pages of their former employees. I like I went out and did my own research and I fought back and I said, okay, this is where I'm gonna fight you. This is where where we're gonna take a stand. And that was uh I, I don't want to go into detail it's exactly what I caught them doing, what I believe was wrong. <laughs> right. But I found it out and I talked to their vendors too, because we use a lot of same vendors and some of them were my friends. So ground game, word on the street, outwork them. Don't go to a lawyer and think that like a lawyer, a good lawyer is like a good software developer, right? Think about the same thing. If you've got a cold fusion code from the 1980s, right? And you got a great software developer, it doesn't mean he's going to make it work. It doesn't mean he's going to make it work. If you've got absolutely no case, it doesn't mean having a good lawyer is going to make it work. And sure enough, you don't want to get bled out. Even if you do have a good case or you do have good defense, sometimes you got to roll up your sleeves and fight on your own and let them know that you're willing to die and 
just like any other fight, you sometimes you can't think about what's going to happen to you. You only can think about what you're going to do to the other guy. That's any anybody who's grown up in the 90s, <laughs> in the violent 90s knows what I'm talking about, is that you, you look at the other guy and you go, okay, you know, this we're going to have the fight. Fine. Let's have the fight. Let's take the gloves off and let's get at it. And that means no hold barred. Reading their public forums, they will tell you, their customers will tell you, their former employees will tell you. Uh, I did have with that old company I was talking about, not not so uh, a bully try to sue us out of, uh, and he was a much bigger competitor, try to sue us out of existence. And I took his old employees out to lunch. And I found out enough about what I needed to bring the fight to his doorstep. And he withdrew with prejudice, which means he can't sue me again. And he called me and apologized twice. So Hey, man, that doesn't always work out that way. But you'd be surprised if somebody's a bully and they're willing to bully you, they probably bullied somebody else too. They're not just their other competitors, they probably bullied their own people. So don't be afraid to reach out and bring the fight to their doorstep and let them know that you're not backing down. And yeah, I don't know how to teach that type of fighting on a podcast, but you know, the I will say the less someone has. The lower they are, either they're going to go out or they're going to they're they're going to fight to the burger. But here's the thing about being a bully: what these guys don't understand, right? Especially the big guys, it really is not in their interest. It's not because all it does is validate their competition. It makes it's it's Hatfield and McCoy marketing. So here's one thing I will say: when the competitor does come after you, or the bully does come after you, if the bully's bigger than you and well known, amplify it. Get full value from the fight. Even if you get knocked out, sell a lot of tickets. You know what I mean? Like you, you get uh, you can't think of Hatfield without thinking of McCoy, right? So if a big monster behemoth comes after you, make sure everybody knows about it, because all of a sudden you're you're trading off their name, you're getting their branding, you're press releasing everything, and if they're public, good God, man. Every deposition send a ticker tag to all their investors. You know, let them know that just like the guy next door, right? I'm going to buy $10,000 worth of speakers and I'm going to play rap music from the 90s from 4 p.m. till 10 p.m. If I, my construction workers can't stay an extra hour, let's have the fight <laughs> and find out where their weak point is because it doesn't matter who they are. Everybody has a weak point and every bully, I say it all the time. Use a little foul language. Cover your ears if you're sensitive. They all have, they all fall in the same pattern. Iron balls and glass jaws. They come out strong, beating their chest, but you wrap them on the chin and they go down. That's every bully I've ever met. You stand up and you get aggressive back and they back. All right. Speaking of that, you also work with a lot of coaches. Yeah. When should a founder? start looking for that first coach? How should they screen the coaches? What should they be looking for? When they can afford it right away, right? Some coaches are expensive. I have a, I have one that's pricier than anything I thought I would have spent on a coach, but he is such an amazing value. It's uh, the president of success.com. It's Jarek Robbins. And I spend one weekend a month primarily navigating through my own decisions and how I am in ownership of all my decisions and how to identify mistakes and make sure I don't make them again and measure measure growth and actual practical growth measurements. So it's not 
all motivation. You know, it, it is very much okay. It, it's it's measured measuring. What gets measured gets better. Measuring my growth, measuring the culture, measuring uh, measuring my own accountability. And when you're the CEO, you know you're accountable for everything. It's, it's it's I believe it's your job to make sure everybody else gets credit for the good things and you get credit for the bad things. And that's the job. You spread praise around and you isolate blame yourself at least publicly. Doesn't mean other people get to be off the hook for mistakes they made, but it's still ultimately your mistake because you're the person that put them in that position. So that's challenging. But as far as an easy and I would say extremely inexpensive thing to do is go join masterminds. They're everywhere, everywhere. I mean, I've got, you've met some of my group out here that are part of our uh, entrepreneur groups. A little known fact about Sean, he came to spend a couple of days with me here in Puerto Rico, ended up at a bald guy's dinner. True story. Fancy five-star dinner, just bald guys. What did you have, like seven guys in there, eight guys? Very elite group, cream of the crop. (laughs) Even the waiter was bald. It was crazy. It was crazy. Um, So, But they're everywhere. You reach out, you ask for help. The helping hands are all around. And then you find out who you jive with. And show me your friends, I'll tell you your future. Be very careful. I, I talked to a friend right before I was on this call. And they're just, they're hanging with the same college buddies, having the same college buddies problems. And yeah, that's cool. Like, no, no worries. Like you, you go and you meet up with your old buddies, but like, that's who, who, who do you want to be is who you are, are being around and, you know, just be and the best way to have a friend is be a friend. So find people who you admire, you respect, you respect and genuinely are good people. That's most important. But who you choose to really spend your time with has to be somebody, if you're a CEO, has to be other CEOs or people that are pushing things forward that can understand your problems and then set a time and take it seriously. Show up and take it seriously. Be a coach. Hey, this is this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm running through. This is you know my blockers. This is the challenges. What do you guys think? You know, And then be there for someone else and genuinely try to offer and impart impart wisdom or, or the benefit of your experience to, to others. And if you can't, and they're not getting the benefit of it, maybe you're in the wrong group. Maybe there's other groups that can do that. Um, then you can seek out coaches. I like the guys at Success, obviously. Go hit, hit those up. They, they have a coaching team. They're, they're great people. Uh, I, I can attribute much of my, at least my peace and uh, well-being to my business coach that helps me turn off. It helps me. I get very unsettled. I'm a deeply imperfect person. I get very unsettled when I'm dealing with, especially an interpersonal issue, especially when it's someone I work with and usually someone in a position of trust where I'm going, wait, something's not right here. There's instability. There's communication issues. I've learned how to actually measure my own communication. I've asked other people I work with to measure theirs and take tests and then we compare and then figure out how to dialogue. And it doesn't, you know, it's crazy. It doesn't always mean that I understand how better to communicate with them or they understand better communicate with me. But the people that I do that with understand that I'm genuinely trying to make things better. And that usually makes things work better. So coaching is great. Measuring yourself, measure, measure, measure. Take all those psychological tests. Have other people see if you can understand that, and how quickly can you adjust to the needs, the at least the communication needs of somebody else. That's going to really determine your success as a CEO. You're you're part translator, right? You're translating 
between uh, people in different departments, understanding, accepting information, and then and then giving it out to people in in ways that they can understand and and helps them work the most. Again, counter to the 1980s model. People are they need they they're craving inspiration. They're craving commitment. They're craving people that are ask that are more committed than they are. That are motivated, not just spiffs and you know, all that stuff's fun, but just people don't they they want to see that you are accountable, that you care, that you're going to be in it with them, and not just you know trying to grind them for as much as you grind them for as much work as you can get, you know. And then yeah, so uh, sorry, I'm tan I'm tangentialing. Coaching huge. I think it's best in a group to start, and then when you when you sharpen your skills, because not everybody's ready for for a coach, they don't always get the value. But to to be in service to others, to offer the benefit of experience, and then to receive the benefit of other people's experience, doing that enough time, then you'll know how to be coached, and you'll get the full value of it. All right, Michael, we got time for one more question. So, as mentioned, my wife and myself, we were able to visit you, your family. Most entrepreneurs we see, and we've talked about this on the show don't have that work-life balance. In fact, a lot of them have bouts of ups and downs where those those lows are lows. They'll talk about mental wellness. It's come up quite a bit on this show. How have you been able to have this amazing balance with your family, with your career, with, with everything? What advice can you share with that? So I don't believe in the work-life balance at all. I, I think it's all, you put so much of your work into your life, right? Like, do do football players have a work life balance? Does Tom Brady have a work life balance? No, <laughs> right? Dude, who does he hang out with? Who do the best football players hang out with? Other football players. You either love it or you don't. It's not a living; it's a loving, right? I don't go to these entrepreneurial groups and hang out with other entrepreneurs and have these business meetings or bald guy dinner. I don't meet the criteria for that, but if there's gray hair guys dinner, I'm there. I, like I go to these things and I enjoy because I, I enjoy being around people discussing ideas. And this is an absolute loving. Does business ensue? All the time. Uh, all the time. It, it always happens. But it's it's very much a loving. So when I'm working, I don't feel it's taking anything from me at all. I don't think it's taking anything from my life. Uh, I do have kids. We've homeschooled for seven years. I feel like they they want to go away to boarding school. Okay. But I feel like I've had them at home and I've got to stop and take a break and not just be with them in an issue for them. I also, and the more I do that, I kind of draw them more into my world and discuss. And when you like try explaining a, a complex business issue to a 12-year-old and, and more importantly, ask their advice, you're going to have to bring it all the way down. And they're going to ask a bunch of dumb questions that are going to lead to a bunch of smart questions. But the amazing stuff happens to you during the process. So if you're a player, like a football player, and this is like part of what you enjoy, I imagine if somebody's a professional football player and they have a son, they're going to enjoy throwing the football back and forth with their son. I imagine that's probably probably something they'll do. I imagine, look, I'm not a professional football player. I'm six foot five and midgets can beat me in basketball. It's embarrassing, but I will go out there and I I do enjoy these complex work things, this stuff we're talking to you about, buying companies. Like there's there's I'll find what my kids will respond to and I'll bring that in, bring them into that. But 
I have to also find out who they are and what they're into and jump into their world. And the more I can do that, the more they can jump into mine. But my work, I really enjoy it. To me, this is this is more than than just a place I show up and collect a paycheck. This is something that is very fun and exciting and, and really gives me a, a more meaningful life and helps contribute to this human experience that I have while I'm on this planet. And yeah, so work is just a massive part of it, but it's it's a true to life. Love it. I mean, would a professional football player pay professional football if it didn't pay as well? Honestly, probably. I mean, who was the biggest? Uh, like Everybody who played with Joe, Joe Namath, he, he made a lot. But all the guys that played with him, they were not that back in the day. It wasn't, you know, it was built out of guys that, that just had a love for the game. And why can't you have a love for business, a love for entrepreneurialism, the way people have a love for football, have a love for any sport? All right. And with that, Michael, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, go Lance, what you're working on, what's your Quora page? What's the best way to go about, about finding yeah, out? I'd say uh, go to golance.com, G-O-L-A-N-C-E.com. Uh, or my, uh, I think I'm on the Twitter. It's uh, Michael Michael Brooks PR on Twitter, or, uh, and then I'm also on the LinkedIn, and I'm on the Facebook. But uh, I'm really on the LinkedIn and on the Twitter, and of course at GoLance.com. Coming in hot at GoLance.com. All right, we're gonna have all that information in the show notes, and for our audience out there, please go to theSiliconValleyPodcast.com. Connect with us. Follow us on social media. And we will keep providing amazing episodes like this every week for you. When I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn or go to our website. Connect with me if you'd like to have a conversation. And with that, Michael, I want to thank you again for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure to be in the Silly. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.